Hello, Gary. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm okay. And yourself? <laughs> I'm doing reasonably well. We just finished our board meeting here in Orlando. Excellent. And everybody's down by the pool having something to drink. Ah, uh, and what you've you've pulled yourself away for the, oh, the the terrible task of podcasting. Yes, it's a, it's it's getting to be a real challenge. But um, <laughs> the, if 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 you start now, there'll be lots of stuff to do. Lots <laughs> of drinks down there. For waiting uh, Where have you been i've been fine you know it's been it's been a working week as it always is you know i've got a few things finished which is nice and i'm now getting sort of set to buckle down and get on to engineering infinity which i've got to get kind of delivered by the end of the month so that'll keep me busy and, and also i guess becoming aware of stuff that i just wasn't aware was coming you know i just saw an ad for you know the the fred pole tribute anthology that Betty Hull is doing Gateways. Betty Hull is doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's who's publishing this? Tor. It's coming out in July, right? And it's got original uh-huh. stories by Greg Bear, Corey Doctorow, Neil Gaiman, Joe Haldeman, Larry Niven, Gene Wolfe, uh, Verna Vinge, a whole bunch of people. Wow, I'd I, not heard of this at all. These things come out of nowhere. Ex- well, exactly. I, I was happened to be, be over on uh, looking at, te- at Fred's blog. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was the way the future blogs.com. And right. he's got a piece saying how pleased he is to be nominated for the fan writer, Hugo. And I know he was. Yeah. Go ahead. What, what were you going to say? No, I, I was saying I, I had seen his, uh, I'd seen links to his uh, being very pleased to be a fan writer after all these years. Mm. In, in one sense, he was the original fan writer. <laughs> Well, yeah, he was very much, and I mean, it, it's interesting that if you look at the blog post that he's done, uh, it does sort of somewhere down the page. I think somebody had uh, actually said how pleased he was to pass on the news, and they mentioned sort of, you know, sort of like it's first fandom member, Futurian, mm-hmm. blah 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 blah. So I mean, whilst he obviously has extraordinary credentials as a professional, he does have very, very, very credible professionals. I'm oh, sorry, credentials as a fan as well. One of the things that, uh, well, you've seen the, uh, at least you've seen my review of the Mark Rich book about Cornblith. Yes. It's very clear, it's very clear that Fred Pohl was known as an agent and a publisher and an editor um, almost exclusively before the Space Merchants and, and, and as a fan. Yeah. He, was, he was one of the, I mean, the, 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 he's one of the, let me think, is there anybody else who's, who could possibly be alive who survived those first late 1930s New York cons? There must be a couple of people. I mean, I don't know if um, Ky- what's his name, Kyle, uh, is still alive. David Kyle. David Kyle. I yeah. don't. Yeah. yeah there um, used to, there was like could be every. The only reason I have any sort of inkling, I have to admit, because I'm somewhat ignorant. I mean, if anyone is since it appears we've now dived into the podcast, welcome. What well, uh, seems to be. <laughs> um, since that's the case, um, if anybody's listening and I'm I'm sort of overlooking something, I'm I'm sorry, but I, I never paid that much attention to the whole. Uh, first fandom traditions, you know. Uh, all I'm aware well, of is that every every, yeah. every Worldcon you get at the Hugo ceremonies, they present the big heart award, and that comes uh, Kyle, and he looks, you know, he looks preserved in his bright red jacket, about seven thousand years old, mm-hmm. and that's it. But I, I don't know if any of them are actually sort of still up and running, except for for Fred. You know, well, for, I mean, Fred Fred is certainly the only one who attained a great deal of prominence is still around. Mm. Uh, from, from from that era. One of the things that fascinates me about that is, and I, I, I like Fred's blog because to some extent it fills in a lot of gaps that are in his autobiography, The Way the mm-hmm. Future Was. And there are other autobiographies that are in bits and pieces, but I've read enough of these things over the years to know that um, that there are legendary figures at the beginning of fandom that created a whole set of political polarities that... Um, that none of us know about anymore. There was a guy named John Michel, M-I-C-H-E-L, who was yep. clearly a, a, a very important figure, a kind of Marxist uh, from the late 30s, who was enormously influential among this group of first fandom, and as far as I know, more or less disappeared, never wrote any fiction, wow. uh, never did anything much beyond the first two or three years of cons, and, and yet everybody from Sam Moskowitz to Fred Pohl uh, talks about how important this guy is and how charismatic he was, and I'm fascinated by him. I, I still think the great novel about SF fandom is yet to be written. 
I think you're probably right, uh, particularly since you have to approach it from that uh, cultural sort of angle. I mean, as what's her name, uh, Sharon McCrum played with in her book mm-hmm. uh, all those years ago. I don't think anyone's really done it seriously. It's actually, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned. No one. Yeah, sorry. No, no, it, it needs to be done the way Michael Chapin did uh, Cavalier and Clay. It needs to be done yeah. with, uh, with, with a great deal of affectionate research and, and, and a fair amount of fictionalization. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the first I, – I used to collect or not collect but at least try to keep track of fictions about science fiction conventions. The first mm-hmm. one I'm aware of came out in the early 1940s by Anthony Boucher called Rocket to the Morgue. <laughs> and it was a murder mystery. So it's a science fiction convention. Yep. Um, and it turns that, that seems to be the easiest way, but it's not, and it's 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 something of a role on a clef, but nobody yeah. knows who the clef is anymore. No one knows who these <laughs> early fans. Are. Well, what I was going to say is, what's interesting is that we seem to be go th- going through the spate of biographies and autobiographies being published. I mean, I remember back at one point, I guess it must have been in the late 1980s, we had a little spate of them. Uh, the one that always comes mm-hmm. to mind is Wonder's Child, the um, Jack Williamson. Jack Williamson. And that was also, I think, when Fred Pohl's own autobiography came out for the first time, The Way the Future Was. And now, right. we've, now we've had, starting probably with the Tiptree biography, which remains probably the best one that's ever been written for the field, um, you have this Cornbluff book, which I don't think many people have seen, which is really no, it's unfortunate. It's, yeah. it's a very interesting book. You've got the Highline book uh, coming out as well. You've got the Highline well. book coming. But don't forget we had the first volume of Bob Silverberg's last year as well. Right, that's correct as well. Uh, a book that I think was perhaps sadly overlooked for, for reasons I'm not really sure of. I think just because every, these things can get published in out-of-the-way places a little bit, and, and that, that's all it takes for them to get missed. Well, one of the problems, I mean, one of the advantages Julie Phillips had was, uh, for one thing, she was not of the field. She was yeah. a professional journalist, which means she knew. And secondly, she had a phenomenal story. Yes. And other than other than Cordwainer Smith, I think we talked about this a little bit last week, mm. there are very few science fiction writers that have interesting stories. Yes. Uh, one, one, one of the great massive achievements, just the most impressive writerly achievements that Isaac Asimov Completed were, were two volumes of autobiography mm. that say absolutely nothing about himself at all, <laughs> but are compulsively readable. Um, and uh, yes, well, and, and there have been other, yeah. other autobiographical essays. There was an anthology that Brian Aldiss and I think Harry Harrison did called Hell's Cartographers, yes. which were autobiographical essays. There was one that Martin Greenberg did. And they're they're just enormously tantalizing. You want to know more about these people, and it's not even, and, and and you want to know more about them in a way that doesn't depend on your having read their science fiction. The mm. advantage of the Tiptree biography is that it was read by thousands of people who had never heard of James Tiptree or Alice Sheldon before at all. Yes, but uh, were so uh, entranced by that story, and it had the feminist angle, it had the sort of entire history of the twentieth 20th, 20th century angle, it had the espionage angle, it had Washington spies in it. I mean. You just don't have enough lives like that to work no. with in our field. Well, I mean, I, th- I think somebody must be working on a Cordwainer Smith book. And Alan Elms uh, at Harvard, uh, he used to be at Harvard. Alan Elms had been working on one for a long time and had done an enormous amount of research. He's published pieces of it okay. here and there. And well, I want to see it done. The one that I want to see finished, actually, is uh, Eileen Gunn's book. Because as you know, Eileen has been chipping away at a biography of Avram Davidson Avram for... Davidson, yeah. Some years now, I don't know how consistently, but for quite a while there, she was working very hard on, on getting it done. And I know that uh, you know, people we knew were being asked to fact-check yes. it and stuff. So um, one would hope that would come out because when I've read some of the essays that he've, he's written and some of the essays that uh, Grania Davis has published, it sounds like he had a fascinating life as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the way to get a science fiction writer's life uh, intriguing to people who are not science fiction readers is, is to have some other aspect. In, in, in Davidson's case, you had this kind of uh, Jewish-American tradition where he was partly a science fiction writer and he was partly writing out of an old kind of almost Yiddish storytelling tradition. He's a mm-hmm. fascinating character in that way. The same way that you had uh, the feminist angle with Tiptree. Uh, there are other biographies which I would recommend for people to look at that nobody knows about. I mean, uh, one of the things I 
uh, well, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not accusing you as reviews editor of not finding <laughs> these things. But Charles Brown found bizarre out of the way biographies. He found a bi- he sent me to review once a biography of, of John Tane, of Eric Temple Bell. Yep. yep. It was published by the Mathematics Society of America. Uh, as far as I know, outside of members of the Mathematics Society, nobody saw it. It's utterly fascinating and, and reasonably well written. Yeah. Um, and the, thing, the, the, the reason that could be published was not because he was a science fiction writer, not because he'd written you know, what uh, in some ways were classic stories like The Greatest Adventure, but mm. because he was uh, one of the leading popular, popularizers of American mathematics. He, 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 math, mathematics. He'd written a book called American Men of Mathematics or something like that. Oh, wow, okay. And that's what got the book published. Uh, but uh, essentially nobody in his mathematical world knew that he was a science fiction writer. Yeah, and nobody, including his own family, knew what his own childhood was like. He yeah. created this entire fictional story about himself. Um, there is a fascinating book I think somebody could do, and I certainly am not the human being to do it. Uh, and the book would be not so much uh, biographies, but short biographical bits about interesting things that have happened to science fiction writers. Because I mean, after all, I mean, for a lot of writers, their life is. You know, spend time with the family, go into a room by themselves, write. It's not the most riveting story quite often. But you get things like, you, know, yeah, I mean, you get things like Cleve mm-hmm. Cartmill being investigated by the FBI and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's interesting stuff. Well, there are two things that, uh, are, uh, that needed to be done. And one is I think there are writers who have interesting lives. Yeah. Uh, and when you talk to writers, not necessarily uh, uh, because they've done interesting things. I mean, uh, Bob Silverberg is a good example. Bob Silverberg has essentially he, he's had he's a fascinating guy. He has wonderful experiences. He's traveled the world. He's a bon vivant in every sense of the word. But basically, all he's ever done is write. Yeah. And he will say this openly. That's basically all I have to say. His autobiographical material can make it sound good. Can make it sound fascinating. Mostly because he's a very fascinating writer. It's the same yeah. principle that worked with Asimov. I would like to see a book that traces the folklore of science fiction yeah. um, uh, in, 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 in terms of the Cleve Cartmill story, in terms of some of the other stories you've heard, um, because so much of this material has entered uh, oral tradition that mm. much of it hasn't been checked out at all. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that the um, Mark Rich book on Cornwall does is it, it, it checks out some of this stuff, and that's why I thought it was utterly fascinating. Yeah. Well, it's, it is. I, I confess it's a book I've not read myself. And, and I mean to. You know, I, I do get, probably as some people do, if it, when, when your interest in the historical or academic side of the field is not as strong as it is to do with fiction, you'll get put off by the hefty prices sometimes charged by academic presses. Um, and that does sort of occasionally make you go, well, I don't know. I, I will say, just for anybody listening, that bookdepository.co.uk is your friend. Mm-hmm. Um, free postage, cheap books. Um, that's where I'm about to order the Cornbluth biography from because it's the cheapest place I've found it. So, um, always worth looking at. But that's just a complete aside. There is something that occurs. Yeah, sorry, no, continue, please. Uh, well, no, it, it's, it's. I was going to say, in Australia, that might be uh, the best you can do. It's amazing what you can find on ABE Books in the States mm. as well. Yeah. Uh, and there are books. There, there are books that kind of. The, the university presses publish some of these. Some of these are very small local presses. Yes. There was a small, tiny press in, I think, northern Florida that published Daniel Keyes's uh, Algernon Charlie and I, which is it's it's partly an autobiography, but it's mostly an autobiography of that one story. Yeah. And it's fascinating in terms of all the elements. It it, it simply is an entire book. Tracing all the elements that went into writing Flowers for Algernon, his teaching mm-hmm. experience, his work editing whatever science fiction magazine he edited. But there are also bits about – he was not involved with the Futurians. He was involved with the Hydra Club in New yeah. York. Yeah. Uh, and he was – and one of the things that struck me about reading that and actually talking to Dan about it at one point, he was the kid. He was the young guy in the Hydra <laughs> Club. He was this Teenager that allowed to come in to you know meet with Judy Merrill and yeah. and and, and from Poland David Knight and, and and so his perspective of it is a fan's perspective yeah and I, I thought that was just really interesting in all kinds of ways because uh, he, essentially Daniel Keyes has more had more or less at that point at the time he wrote that autobiography had more or less been out of the science fiction field for decades yeah uh, he was you know basically he was the guy who wrote Flowers for Algernon which is 
basically all you need to to be. Yeah. But that meant that when he went back and looked at his memoirs of earlier science fiction uh, writers and editors, he was still looking at it from the fan perspective. Yeah. You know, here's a guy who was uh, in in his seventies writing an autobiography. The guy who possibly wrote the most successful science fiction <laughs> story of all time, and probably. I would guess almost certainly the financially most successful science fiction story of all time with multiple movies and, mm-hmm. and novels and that sort of thing. Writing about Judy Merrill in absolute awestruck wonder that yes. he, he was beating her. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing I want to see more of. Philip Jose Farmer was, um, had twice or two or three times wanted to write an autobiographical novel, uh, which would be a complete Romanoclef about the science fiction fan scene in the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s. He was basically discouraged from doing it by his agent and by his publisher. They're saying, "No, no, nobody's going to know who uh, uh, who was who would have been the main character." I'm, it's, it's, it's a name that I'm blanking on at the moment. Um, Randall Garrett. Okay. Oh yes. It, now, Randall Garrett is one of the great mythological figures in the history of science fiction fandom. <laughs> Everybody tells Anna. Uh, 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 Silverberg has stories about Randy Garrett. Harlan Ellison has stories about Randy Garrett, and, and, and Phil was going to write this, and basically he was told at the time, you just can't do this. Yeah. Uh, he said, first of all, you should wait until everybody is absolutely dead, and secondly, uh, even then, the most interesting characters here uh, yeah. are, are not the ones that have any have any traction outside the science fiction field. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's it, and it is. I got to say, it, it's really a, a little surreal sometimes looking back at fans, you know, because you know you look at someone like Bob Bob Silverberg, who through the entire time I've known him has been a witty, urbane uh, patrician of the field who has written classics mm-hmm. and has been a huge name for forever, you know. Uh, and yet you go to look at his autobiography, and there are these photos of this. Uh, this kid with no facial hair who's out hanging out with other fans mm-hmm. at conventions in 1951 or something. And it's really odd to think that underneath it all, and I mean, I know it's true because of, you know there's correspondence that's been had and everything. Mm-hmm. He's still Bob Silverberg, the fan from New York, who got caught up in science fiction in the 40s and 50s. You know? And... Yeah, and, and when you talk to people, this, this is what I think is being lost, and I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that, that, that Bob is writing this material. Um, I mean, Harlan, I've talked to Harlan Ellison a couple of times, and many people have asked him, why don't you write an autobiography? And his answer, which is a, a fairly reasonable answer, is it's all there. I mean, there's so much autobiographical yes. material he's written in and out of his fiction that you can piece yeah. it together. Yeah. And the, certainly the ambience of being a fan in the early 50s uh, is there, but the notion that what it must have been like uh, to you know, to meet Isaac Asimov for the first time when he's in his 30s and you're a teenager mm. uh, is something you, people like you and I can't recreate that. No, no. Oh, look, I mean, I, I, there's, there's all kinds of things. I mean, I, I look back as someone who grew up as an old-time science fiction fan in some ways, and mm-hmm. the people that I can never meet, the people who are never even, they didn't seem real because, you know, they were just names on the spines of books. The idea that uh, Charles spent a lot of time hanging out with Bob Heinlein, mm-hmm. and you're kind of going, but it's Bob Heinlein. And then, like, you know, right now, I mean, you read Fred Pohl talking about Heinlein's wives and all this kind of stuff uh, on his blog. Right. And it's just very strange and surreal to be peeking in these windows and you see these photos you know from old fan, old conventions and there will be i don't know maybe cliff simak sitting around talking with ray bradbury sitting around talking with you know ted sturgeon or something and when phil when yeah. when, when phil farmer died i was one of the things i was doing uh to I don't know, for, for, partly for Locus, partly for, for Phil Farmer's website, which is still maintained by Microtoes. I, I went through his basement and I was looking through photos of the 1968 Oakland Worldcon, I guess uh-huh. it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a photograph of, here, here's, here's, here's Phil, but here's, here's Philip K. Dick. Here is uh, uh, Louis and B.B. Barron, who are composers that wrote the elect- first electronic music for a Hollywood movie score. It turned out wow. to be Forbidden Planet. Yep. And they were friends of the Farmer's. Um, I don't know if Bob Harlan was there, uh, and, I'm, and it's interesting to look at that photograph today and realize that there are uh, thousands of people who would be really impressed to see Philip K. Dick hanging around with these people, and 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 the rest of us are thinking, "Wow, that's Phil Farmer as a kid. That's Harlan Ellison as a <laughs> yeah. as, 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 yeah. as a punk." Yes, uh, and that 
sense of what that must be like is really hard to recreate. Okay, here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. Since okay. Now, you've lived in uh, Ireland and, and, and the States and, and Perth. Who was the first science fiction writer you met that just blew you away? Like, I can't believe I'm meeting this person. Howard Waldrop. Howard Waldrop. That's yep. interesting. You, I, well, you got to realize that uh, until nineteen, uh, until oh my, in fact, is, let me think of that's true. The first writer, the first human being I ever met who had written a book was Steve Donaldson. I'd mm. never, I'd never seen or even necessarily imagined someone who'd written a book before because he toured White Gold Wielder back in '83, right, and came to Perth and did a signing and a talk at a university. So that was the first time I'd encountered a, you know, a writer. Um, probably. I spent a little bit of time with C.J. Cherry in, the, in 1986 when she came mm-hmm. out here, and that was you know, sort of a bit of a thing. But, but Howard was different because I was right in the middle of a real love affair with his work, and he came mm-hmm. out here. You know, we sort of, the money was dragged up to bring him out as, you know, as a guest of honor, and he stayed at a friend's house. I mean, I remember going out to the airport to pick Howard up. Now, and you know, there's you know, two of us jumped in the car, drove out, and Howard gets, you know, comes out through the, you know, the uh, arrival gate, and he's got this little, you know, those old Pan Am um, carry-on bags, little tiny ones. He'd want one of those, oh. sort of, you know, the flight bags. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah, yeah. He, he has one of those, and we're going. Okay, well, let's go over and get your luggage. And he goes, "This is it." And he's here for three weeks. <laughs> oh, well, that's. And he has a fishing rod. I kid you not, a collapsible fishing rod. <laughs> I think a spare shirt, shirt and a spare pair of underwear in his. Um, uh, in his bag, and that's it for three weeks. And he spent time hanging out, and he was staying at my friend's house, so he fixed his flywire door, and he went fishing down the, the Swan River in the middle of the city every day, and was just this approachable, fascinating, interesting guy. And so to get some actual real contact, rather than dealing with, oh my God, it's so-and-so, really made a difference, because by the mid-90s, we'd had a few people through town. I mean, uh, Terry, mm-hmm. Pr- Terry Pratchett had been through town, uh, I think Neil Gaiman was about to, um, bunch of people who, who would have been interesting to talk to, but he was the only one who I ever actually spent any time with, I think, up to that point. I, I think that's really what I'm talking about, is not simply seeing somebody at a distance, but, but mm. having a sense that I'm having a conversation with, with this person, and we're kind of uh, on the same level, and uh, it's, it's, it's an important uh, part of the demythologizing of writers, mm. I think, is when you realize... Uh, demythologizing, not in a bad sense, not no. in the sense of you realizing they have feet of clay, but realizing they're cool. Writers can be cool people. <laughs> um, I think my first experience, and I ask you that question without knowing what my own answer would be, but the first one that matches your account was at uh, a science fiction research associate. Mm-hmm. It's Phil Farmer, who's, yeah. one of, who's one of my oldest friends in the field, was. Um, and and Gordon Dixon was there as well, and I can't remember who else was. I think mm-hmm. probably some, some well-known academics like Darko Suvin. But the thing that caused us to start having conversations was uh, this was not a well-funded conference. We were not being put up in a Hyatt hotel. We were yeah. being put up in the dorm of the University of Wisconsin <laughs> at Milwaukee, which had a power failure following a thunderstorm, meaning that the elevators to the 18th floor where we were all being housed did not work. Yeah. And neither did the lights in the cafeteria where we were. <clears throat> so essentially, we were sitting in the dark. And I, I remember distinctly sitting across from Phil Farmer and next to Gordon Dixon. And we were just trying to figure out what are we going to do now? Uh, <laughs> because we're going to try to walk up the 18 floors. Are we going to sit here and drink? But you can't buy drinks because you're in a college dorm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just started talking and commiserating. And I. Uh, Remember saying to Phil at one point when we were absolutely trapped, uh, what, <laughs> what, what would Tarzan do? Uh, he'd, writ- he'd written uh, that biography, the Lord Greystoke book, the um, uh, biography of Tarzan, and uh, that's, how, that's about the time this came out. Mm. And, and his response to me was, well, in the first place, Tarzan wouldn't be in Milwaukee. <laughs> okay. All right. That's... That might be my feeling about this year's World Fantasy Convention. Would Tarzan I can Columbus up? I know. Don't, don't, don't berate Columbus. I shan't. Have been. No, no, I shan't. Charming. I'm not trying to berate that charming place, but I'm just saying. Um, but actually, you made me think about something else about writers. The, you know, the odd moments of, oh my God, awe when you actually encounter someone. It's like, the first, I remember when I went overseas for the first time, the first Worldcon I went to, 
was in San Francisco in 93. The, you know, the legendary uh-huh. convention where everybody met everybody. And there were two, two moments. There was a launch for Science Fiction Age that was being held, um, mm-hmm. I guess hosted by Scott Edelman and whoever else. And there was sitting on this big round sofa in a corner. It's one of these big round, round sort of like almost like a huge ottoman or something. On one corner of it, not being bothered by anybody else, were Fred Paul and Betty Hull. Uh-huh. Just sitting there quietly, minding their own business. And I was diagonally on the opposite side of it, talking to my friends. I was looking at them going, that's Fred Paul. Right there. That mm-hmm. Couldn't go up and talk to Fred Paul because it was Fred Paul. Oh, my God. Yes, uh, exactly. And then uh, the, a couple of days later, Marianne had you know, invited me to sit with the Locust crew at the Hugo ceremony. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting, I can, I can picture it exactly. I was sitting one row behind and one seat to the, to the left. So just over the left shoulder of Stan Robinson as he was up for Red Mars. And I remember thinking, oh my God, that's, Stan, that's, that's Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm-hmm. I mean, not even Stan Robinson. You wouldn't have thought that. No, Kim Stanley Robinson. Right. Uh, who, you know, it's like a huge name in the field. Oh my God. So, you know, I certainly carried that fanish awe of writers into the field for a long time. And there's still people every now and again you'll encounter and you go, I don't know that I can actually talk to this person. It's kind of like, um, um, you know, I think if I, if Fritz Leiber was still alive and full of vim and vigor, I don't, uh-huh. know, I don't know whether I could carry on a conversation to be like, um, I love your work. Um, I've seen that happen among very good writers. And there's one, uh, a guy I probably shouldn't mention the name, but he's a very good, successful writer who, who, who actually runs a, an MFA program, which narrows it down a little bit. <laughs> and I had, to, I had the chance to introduce him to Daniel Keyes once. Now, Daniel Keyes had disappeared from our field forever. He was going to mystery conferences and that sort of thing. He hadn't been to a science fiction conference in 20 years, and he came to the one that I'm actually at the executive board meeting uh, of now. Yep. And it was the only time I've introduced anybody to anybody else where the person, I said, this is Daniel Keyes, and the person I was introducing him to Fell down. Fortunately, there was a. There, we were at the pool, and there was there was there was a chase long behind him. He fell onto a chase long, so he didn't hurt him. He fell down, and and then he, he gathered himself together, and said, "That is the perfect story arc. It's what we've all been looking for." <laughs> and then, so after that, of course, what you do is you just drag poor Dan Keys around, introducing him to people to watch reactions. Yeah. Um, and um, and it's it, it's kind of a it, it, it's a terrific feeling. It, it is, but I. Don't know if – is that still reproducible these days? I suppose so. Here's a question also. Sure. This goes back to look. How did you know what Stan Robinson looked like? Locus. I mean I was thinking, that about, this, is, I was thinking about this for, yeah. just for a second. I was thinking about this this morning. I am – I mean for various reasons. Um, I'm a child of Locus, sort of. Mm-hmm. Even, even though I was 20 years old when I encountered it, a happenstance lined me up. I mean I was a white Anglo-Saxon male who encountered science fiction through Heinlein when he was eight – and because of geographical distance, ended up getting mm-hmm. old science fiction. So through the 70s, I'm reading, uh, you know, uh, Van Vogt and Simak and Pohl and Kornbluth and all these guys. Um, then in 1984, encounter Locus for the first time. And it suddenly mm-hmm. pops in and says, here is a field of science fiction that you've never thought about. Here are all these writers. Here are all these other books that the world's never told you about before. And yes, as Charles deliberately did. Photo after photo after photo after photo of all these writers, yeah. and and one of the things he did, and this was, I mean, we're back to we 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 keep coming back to Charles' nostalgia, <laughs> but you know our our listeners will get over that. We'll get over it. Um, he told me many times because I was when I started writing for Locus, he was making sure that people took pictures of me at every convention, mm-hmm. and there were two things he had in mind. Uh, you know, in the, in the in the pre Google Images days, yep. Locus was to enable you as a fan to recognize your favorite writers when you saw them at a convention. A and B to recognize the locust people, so yeah. they asked to take your picture or something. So, so he wanted us all recognized, and, and Liza has continued that tradition, she has, yeah, uh, which I think is very important. But it was one of the ways of establishing a community in the field, yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I, it, it's, it still goes on. Like I say, it's, it, it's, it still goes on with, with, with Google as, as every place else. Uh, but by and large, that was an important part of the community was simply being able to recognize a writer at a distance. I never mm. understood how back in nineteen. 19- 42 or something, somebody would have recognized Heinlein. 
I doubt that's what they did. I doubt they would. I mean, probably would have come down to a photo on a book jacket. And the Mm -hmm. fact, actually, probably in terms of recognizing Heinlein as a science fiction writer, the only place it would have happened would have been at a convention, I'm guessing. And the convention would have been such a closed, small community that Mm -hmm. they would have been lionized in passing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, somebody would point him out to you and you would uh, have this sense of... uh um, yeah, well, it's like there, there, was, there was a guy who used to sh- uh, be involved in Perth fandom years and years ago, a guy called Greg, mm-hmm. Tur- Greg Turkic. He was a police officer, I think, and he played bagpipes. And he, would, he always uh-huh. would tell the story how he, at uh, one of the Aussie cons, uh, Aussie con one or two, so 1984 or something, um, he was sitting in the, uh, must have been the main entranceway for the convention facility, playing the bagpipes. And this old guy comes mm-hmm. up and says to him, this is really awesome. Come up and play in our party. And he's kind of going, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. Uh, and off, he, off, so off the old guy goes eventually. And someone comes up and says, what did Isaac Asimov want? And he, oh, jeez. And the guy, near, he just he fell over because he couldn't believe that, first of all, that was Isaac Asimov. And second of all, he just said no to Isaac Asimov. You know? But this ties in with something else. So your, your, your questions are very salient. Because just yesterday, I got an email from a mutual friend, Guy K, mm-hmm. pointing out mm-hmm. a, a piece that he was, he'd uh, been involved with online, talking about the pressures for authors to have a public face now. Yeah, yes, to, 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 it, the same thing. Yeah, to interact with um, the, their readers on a one-to-one basis, and I guess sort of you know cre- create at least the illusion of a personal relationship, if not an actual personal relationship. And I think that's what undermines, to some degree, what, what you're talking about—the possibility for someone to be you know, flat out knocked down, drag out, stunned because they've actually seen the living, breathing human being who wrote the awesome book that they fell in love with. Well, I mean, they're all, most of them are online and they're blogging and they're twittering and they're, you know, they're around. Not not everybody by any means, but a heck of a lot of them. Uh, a, a lot of them are, and a lot of them are, and there's still a lot of writers, to be honest, uh, and Guy K not among them necessarily because he, he doesn't do this. A number of very good, very successful writers who go to more con- conventions than they need to because, out of the belief that they have to physically see their readers. Mm. Um, I, I, and, and there's a point at which, and I'm not going to name names here, but you probably could figure out who I'm talking about, where writers basically um, – are maxed out in the fan community. Their fans are going to buy everything they do, but they still feel that they need to go to every convention, which undoubtedly interferes with the writing in some cases. And I'm not sure that that is entirely a healthy thing. Obviously, if uh, in, in well, science fiction has its own version of this. If Thomas Pynchon showed up at a book expo <laughs> in America, I think there would be a lot of people there fascinated by that and absolutely awestruck. And I think... Uh, on a smaller scale, if Greg Egan were to suddenly show up at a Worldcon on a panel discussion with, let's talk about, com- yeah, that would get some attention. It, it uh, would, but, but, but the problem with that is you have to put a hell of a lot of work into it. I mean, Greg Egan showing up at a convention uh, to be stunning is only would only be stunning because for the last twenty years he's not. Right. Exactly. You know, um, and, um, and also I guess we can't overlook the fact that uh, there are people who they do all of that not to reach out to the readers, especially at all. But because they really like it, I mean, my well, impression and, is that, that a Mike Resnick, for example, a man who I, I don't know very well, loves it. Well, I think it's true, and I think there is a uh, a, a kind of public fandom which is different from writing. Uh, hmm. There is, if you look at, uh, I'm sure it's still there up on Neil Stevenson's website. Now, uh, when I go to the Locus Awards, which I'll be doing later this month in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I hope to see Neil there. I mean, he shows up very, and he's very nice. He's, there's nothing reclusive about him at all. But his attitude is, as expressed on his website, that would you rather see me at conventions or would you rather see the next Neil Stevenson novel? <laughs> he, he, doesn't, he doesn't feel that he can do both uh, and devote energy to, to both. And I think that's perfectly legitimate. It is. I mean, I will say, and this is talking out of school completely, that you can't help but feel that no matter what else, George Martin's public life would be a little easier if he just said the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. you know I'm not going to blog about well, the fact that I've been doing all these things that it's perfectly okay that I do, just so that mm-hmm. you don't sit there going, why were you doing that instead of writing my book? I think maybe the difference has to do with how people worked their way into the field. George Martin is a good example. He mm. was a fan. Yep. He'd written a bunch of short stories. He had a song for Laya. He had literally worked his way through 
uh, the traditional science fiction short story writer collaboration, oh, yeah. an occasional novel, gets to Hollywood. He still, I believe, thinks of himself in that context, as in some ways this Bob Silverberg, who's, sure. who's, who's older than he is. Uh, Neil Stevenson had a couple of mainstream novels, The Big U, and then Gangbusters, you know, out of the uh, out of the gate with with uh, Snow Crash, he was a major figure in science fiction. Yep. Uh, he, he didn't really have to go. I mean, I'm sure he had, as a reader, had gone through a period of being uh, absolutely fascinated by science fiction, but he never went through the kind of classic apprenticeship in the field that somebody like George Martin did. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> and this also ties into something else that I was twittering about this week, and that I'm curious in your view on. I mean, I I, mm. I read somebody talking about. The big four magazines, yeah, Asimov's Analog, FNSF, mm -hmm. and maybe Realms of Fantasy, right? And it made me think back to the days of the big three writers. You know how we had, you know, it was, it was a Heinlein Clark mm -hmm. and Asimov were the big three, and if you went mad, you added in either Paul or Bradbury as the big four. Right, right. And somebody else, a friend of mine, made comment about to do with gender and everything else, which was completely valid that, you know, there were obviously awesome women at the time and da 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 da. But, it's interesting how historically, well, first of all, the field was so small that three or four people could dominate it the way those people did at the time, you mm -hmm. know, um, and the fact that it's, it is, it is bending history, I think, to recast the history of the field to not have those people as the big three or big four that they were, and also that I don't see any... Uh, move in the modern field towards th that sort of thing evolving. I, I mean, if you think about it, the big, you know, yes, Paul is still alive and writing. Mm. Yes, Bradbury is still alive and writing. But you would have thought that, say, in the 70s or so, or early 80s, there would have been a second generation of big three or big four. But the field doesn't ever seem to have produced that. Well, we've talked about this before. I think mm. the field at, has, has been in the process of atomizing. I'll plug my book, which is where I can plug it up because it's not going to be out for eight months. Uh, <laughs> the, field, the field is evaporating. It, it, it's, it's, it's all over. Um, well, this is a discussion I had with Charles about the center not holding. Well, exactly the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that happened uh, between uh, Asimov and, uh, and, and Clark and Heinlein, and I do think you're right. I think both Bradbury and, and Pohl were outliers. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, in the early 50s, when the big three were Asimov, Pohl was still a new writer. I mean, the, yeah. the Space Merchants was barely, the Gravy Planet sure. was barely out, and Bradbury was off to the side. He was writing Ray Bradbury fiction already. In the magazines, Heinlein and Asimov and, and, and Clark had more or less established templates for other writers to use. Yeah. And I'm not sure that's happening much anymore. I mean, it's uh -huh. uh, it's it's very easy to. It, it probably would have happened with uh, probably to some extent happened with with William Gibson. Yeah. Um, and I think that there was a period, and for at least 20 years, uh, let's say the last 15 years of the 20th century, when anybody naming the top three influential writers in science fiction, Gibson would have been in that list. Um, who else, though? I. I think it's there was nobody else who had quite as obviously created a template the way Gibson did or the way Heinlein had uh, 50 years earlier. No, I, th I think you're right. I mean, there are people who had key moments in the field or made key contributions. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm even sort of thinking, if you go back bef before uh, Gibson even, no one ever talks about Le Guin or um, Joe Haldeman or Larry mm -hmm. Niven as being the big three or four or eight or 27. Um, right. It's like somewhere around about the time of the new wave or so, whilst the big three were still dominant commercially as well, and I, that, that's the other thing I think that's an important part of the whole big concept in this particular, mm -hmm. you know, is that they were not only artistically dominant, but they were commercially dominant. You know, uh, I think that's crucial. I think that's crucial because when you mention those big three that you're mentioning, the classic big three, mm. Clark, Asimov, Heinlein, those are also – they're not quite the first writers ever to get science fiction novels on the New York Times bestseller list. But they're among that small club. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't do it at the time, of course, but they eventually did. Um, I think part of also what, what affects this is the nature of the way people move in and out of the field. I was always curious mm. about how Asimov's late foundation and robot novels, to be perfectly honest, are not very good, mm. all, hit the, all hit the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons they did that, outside of clever marketing, 
is that you had an accumulation, a kind of backlog of three or four generations of occasional science fiction readers. Yeah. Everybody who had discovered the Foundation uh, novels or, the, or, or the, the, the Caves of Steel or the Naked Sun back in the 50s still remembered them fondly. Yeah. And people who had discovered them in the 60s remembered them yes. fondly. And people who discovered them in the 70s. And all these people build up. They're not science fiction readers anymore, but they want to see one more, one last robot novel from Isaac Asimov. Yes. And they all went out and bought it. I th- and- I, yeah, absolutely. I think, funnily enough, you see this exact an exact analogy for this in the jazz community with Miles Davis and John mm-hmm. Coltrane, where you know there's more commercial gain to be made out of finding an extra 40 minutes of tape from some corner of the Columbia archive uh, of Miles Davis warming up than there is some new jazz release that's going to be wonderful and cutting edge and part of that of that field. Uh, yeah, they don't. But yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, outtakes of let's take Miles Davis. Let's not get off into jazz too much. Yeah. But outtakes of Miles Davis and Gil Evans from the sketches of Spain sure. period in the late fifties, early sixties would be a lot more popular than outtakes of the later Miles Davis, the bitches brew, the, mm-hmm. dis- the, the dissonant, atonal, experimental stuff, uh, because that's not what the nostalgia people wanted. That what they yeah. wanted was the same thing they'd seen before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think. Yeah, and, and for example, you're not going to find uh, – there are lots of good trumpeters out there, and I can't name them because I'm not keeping up anymore. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find any modern musicians that I can think of trying to recreate incomplete Miles – well, I'm thinking, what I'm thinking of is the Foundation trilogy that was written yes. by Brenner and Benford. Sure, exactly. Uh, it's, that's completely – to me, suggests that the franchise is what attracted readers more than the writer. Yes, exactly. We, we, People wanted to read more Foundation stories, and Asimov was dead, and let's get the best people in the field. Actually, the novels themselves aren't bad. Well, uh, the novels are, are constrained by having to be stuck in this universe. Well, absolutely. I mean, we've got other examples of exactly this in the field, and that show that as fine writers as those three gentlemen are, and I'm a particular fan of Bear and Benford's work, Mm-hmm. Um, especially you know, Benford's Galactic uh, you know, Center tr- series and um, a lot of uh, uh, Bear's Hard SF, and which made them such ideal choices. It could have been anybody writing them, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. I, I mean, the great example of that has to be the uh, the June novels that Kevin Anderson and um, Brian Herbert are doing, the, the, which, are, Herbert are doing which, which are probably you know, I, I, it pains me for some reason to say this probably the most successful original science fiction novels on the planet of the last t- 10 years, 15 years. Maybe. I, I, I suspect that maybe Todd McCaffrey's dragon novels are, 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 close, are close second. Um, mm. but, but in the same, it just reinforces the point I'm making is that mm. uh, franchises are more marketable than writers are. So that's something I learned at a comic book convention a couple of weeks ago. I was here uh, it was interesting to watch. Well, Peter Straub has written a graphic novel, which will be out in the fall, yeah. called The Green Woman. Yeah. Uh, and it's very, it's very good. It's very complicated. He wrote it with Michael Easton, who is a friend of his, who is also a soap opera star. And so they, they're in Chicago, and I'm going to this convention with them. And the first thing I realized is that in the comic book world, the franchise is far more important than the author. Yeah. And the corporate directors who run the franchise can hire and fire writers, but what happens to the Hulk or what happens to Wonder Woman or what happens to Superman mm. or Batman, the Justice League of America, are corporate decisions. Yep. And they've learned long ago that their readership uh, follows the franchise rather than the authors. It's very difficult for even, I would think, a serious comics fan to to name uh, who the writer is of the current series of, uh, let's say, Justice League uh, comics because the writers are hired help. Uh, and when Peter was introduced to this audience of DC, uh, he was introduced almost apologetically as a writer of prose novels, <laughs> as though this were an eccentricity. This guy actually, you, you, the, 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 the vice president from, from, from uh, DC, uh, whose name I can't remember, no, the, sorry, the president of DC, uh, was almost apologetic in, in saying, you probably won't know him because he writes prose novels. 
and I had this. It's it's like this guy <laughs> bakes this guy bakes giant muffins. You probably haven't had them, but he's really good at baking giant muffins. And here he is, and he's finally baking things that you can understand. And I thought this is a very strange world, but it's a it's a, it's only an extension and an exaggeration of that world we saw with uh, the Pern novels, with the Dune oh, yeah. novels, and the, uh, uh, with, with the Foundation novels sure. before that. And in fairness to them, the reverse uh, is true. I remember. And this will probably sort of seem amusing, I don't know. I remember waiting ex- with great interest for the Sandman anthology that Neil Gaiman edited to come out. Mm-hmm. Because then I could read it as stories because I wasn't interested in reading the graphic novels. Exactly, but that's that makes you a little bit retro, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I think we've already sort of established that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I suppose so. But there, there, is a sense of, um, there is a sense of reclaiming materials from comic books back into fiction, which has been going on for decades. Mm. I mean, there have been Superman novels. Uh, back in the, let me think, I'm going to say mid-60s, Donald Barthelme, one of the, who's since become one of the high priests of the modernist short story, mm-hmm. wrote a terrific Batman story. Um, uh, and nobody noticed it at the time as being anything out of the ordinary. And now you have uh, whole generations of writers, I and mean, not just you know Michael Chabon sort of repurposing the Superman mm-hmm. story uh, in, in Cavalier and Clay, but but lots of there are prose novels, as as the president of DC would have it, based on superheroes, and I don't see necessarily any problem with that. Oh, as a matter of no, fact, no. to some extent, to some extent, I like the idea of uh, of, of, of finally seeing Sandman as a story. Um, well, yes, I mean uh, there, there certainly was a time when I was you know I would think you know that's an interesting sounding graphic novel. I wonder if they're going to put out a you know a real version of it. Mm-hmm. I, I have, and I guess, moved beyond this, but you know, the, the, yeah, there was a long time when that was how I how I looked at it. Well, here's one of the things that's interesting about stories as um, as stories rather than as as, as media. I was at the um, uh, theater production here in Chicago of Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Yeah, it was done as a two-hour stage production, a small off-loop uh, company, which is what in Chicago is the equivalent of off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. A brilliant set design. I mean, not a huge budget, obviously. No well-known people. And to be honest, I liked it a lot better than I liked the TV series, yeah. um, which, which frankly kind of put me to sleep. And uh, the more I thought about it, well, maybe I like this better than I like the novel, uh, which was written more or less at the same time as, as, as the TV series in England, as I understand. Mm-hmm. But it started me thinking, when you've got a good story, and it's fundamentally a good story, mm-hmm. what's the best way to present that story? Yeah. Um, and and is 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 a novel inherently a superior form of storytelling to a graphic novel? I don't think so. No, no, I don't um, either. No. And and it is a play in this case. Having seen, actually, I don't think there is a graphic novel of Neverwhere. Is there? Uh, if there is, I don't know about it. No, I'm not aware of one. No. The, but there certainly is the t- TV show. There mm. was the novel, and now there's the stage production. Yeah. And of the three, I think I like the stage production best because it it was constrained by the need for a kind of storytelling efficiency that neither of the others were. Yeah. And uh, so the idea of novelizing a miniseries, uh, I'm not, I, I don't know if I've seen a good example of that, but I'm not in principle ob- uh, uh, objecting to it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I've got to say that uh, I was at uh, out at the stores yesterday and I was playing with an mm-hmm. iPad, which only... Yeah, you know, was only released here a week or two ago. I've been doing that too. Yes, getting ready to basically talk myself into go buy one. I think. <laughs> Are you on the I, same trajectory? Trajectory? I'm. I, I know I'm going to buy one. I mean, it's it's only a matter of principle. My my, my, my the only thing that's keeping me from buying an iPad. And Ellen Clay just was showing me hers, and it's delightful. And reading books on it is wonderful. And there's all kinds of other things you can do on it. There, there it's just a kind of general principle of buying Apple products that you know. This product is going to be a hundred dollars less six months from now when the new version for seven hundred dollars is introduced. <laughs> yes, and it will have the bits that are that are missing on this one that you exactly. know are missing. You know, um, mm-hmm. I mean, particularly since I mean, you're talking about Neil Stevenson. I think everybody within the field makes the same analogy about the iPad, and that it is yes. it's the precursor for the young lady's Victorian primer that he mentions in the Diamond Age. Um, it, it plainly it, is. It, it is. It, it, it can do anything. The other thing, which is where Neil Stevenson is a good analog, uh, is that if you're like I am, and uh, and I have a Sony reader, which I'm perfectly happy with, mm-hmm. and let's say, and I, I read all of the Baroque cycle, 3,000 yep. words, 3,000 pages or whatever it was, yep. 
And when you're lying in bed at night trying to hold this book up, or when you're on an airplane <laughs> trying to hold this book up, a, a small electronic device is really attractive at that point. <laughs> yes, I have to admit, I mean, I noticed that, I don't know if you've read, read the reviews of them, but Adam Roberts has been reading, uh, doing a reread, well, a read for him, not a reread, of Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time. He challenged himself to read the whole series and then review them on his website, which he's been doing. And that's a, a point where I would have thought it would be really nice to have it in electronic format. You know, exactly. I don't know, don't know that I want two feet of Robert Jordan books, particularly, taking, you know, in my house. Um, because it's just, it's too much. Um, but I, the reason I mentioned the iPad actually as much as anything mm. is I thought, gee, I'd love to be able to read Sandman on the iPad. That would be awesome. That looks like it's what it's made for, you know. It does. The illustrated book, the graphic novel, the, uh, the, 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 I'm trying to remember what the iPad uses as its demo library book. It's Winnie the Pooh or something like yes, that. Yes, it is. With color it's, illustrations, yes. yes. And it's, Gorgeous. I mean, you're looking at color illustrations, which you cannot do on the Kindle or the iPad. I, they'll, they'll be coming up with color versions of it. Mm. But by and large, you're right. It is a universal sort of information device, which, um, as I, I, was, I was talking to Ellen about this, who's absolutely convinced that this is the wave of the future. But she can't exactly say why. One of the things that's absolutely brilliant about um, about the way Apple does things is that they will put things on the it's, – it's, it's like the street finds its own users for these things in mm -hmm. Gibson's terms. They'll put, they'll put a product out and wait for you and the apps people to figure out what to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was playing with, with Ellen's, I was playing with the music programs. I was playing with the various video programs. I was realizing you can read ARCs and, 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 and PDFs and, and, and Word manuscripts on it because you just email them to yourself and open them up. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's the, – and that's the other reason I'm waiting on buying an iPad is because what I want to do with the iPad is largely read books. Yep. And I don't think they're going to do much to improve that. No, I don't think they will. Uh, they will add a forward-facing um, camera to it, which means you'll be able to do video Skyping quite nicely. It's terrific, yeah. And they'll add a backwards-facing camera so you can take photos, but more importantly so you can do augmented reality, which is the whole young lady's Victorian primer thing. Exactly. Uh, but part of me goes, you know what? This thing's been out for... 12 days here or 14 days here because it was delayed so long. Uh -huh. uh, I'd kind of like one now. <laughs> and if anybody wants well, to send I, me one... I, I, yeah, I, I, what I'm doing right now, and I, I, I assume you have an Apple store somewhere in Perth. No, not yet. Uh, you don't? Well, we, I, I walk past the Apple store to and from my office. Oh. <laughs> it's, it, it's really a little bit like a crack house. Uh, because I can go in there and play with the iPad for 20 or 30 minutes. And think, okay, I'm done. I've, I've done my iPad thing for today. I'm okay. Yep. I can go home without an iPad now. Yep. And you keep thinking sooner or later I'm going to need more iPad. And then the next day after that I'm going to need a little bit more iPad. <laughs> and well, pretty soon that's – yeah, pretty soon I'm, I'm in the gutter with my iPad. Well, the other thing that, I mean, uh, makes the iPad attractive to me, I mean, is that, yes, as a reader, overwhelmingly as, as a book reader, uh, and, uh, to d deal with PDFs and all kinds of other things – um, but also, you know, I carry, when I go to America, which is only, I mean, it's two weeks a year, but still, I carry a laptop with me that, that weighs two and a half kilos or what, four or five pounds or something, I guess. Right. And I think, okay, well, what do I want to use it for really? I want to be able to Skype and I want to be able right. to um, read email and browse the web and I want to be able to listen, you know, listen to music and read books. Well, right. I mean... The iPad kind of kills the need to take a two and a half kilo laptop around the place. Um, that's true as well. It's not. Uh, it's it's actually not as light as a Kindle or a Sony reader, but it's certainly not as heavy as a laptop. Mm. I think so. it's only about six hundred grams. It's about a pound and a bit. I think it seems. It seems a bit. Yeah, it's uh, a bit over a pound. Um, so I mean, it's it's you know, I mean, it frustrates me that it doesn't do two things at once. So I can't listen to music and read, which is something that I like to do. Right. But you know. Anyway, enough of selling Steve Jobs products enough for Enough of selling him. Apple products on this podcast. <laughs> Who yes. do not need our help, no. Have you been reading books, Gary? Um, I've been reading books, and I'm, I'm uh, at the moment at the, in the middle of reading Year's Best Anthologies, which I have to be enormously grateful for. And, well, since you do one of them, I'm enormously grateful that you're doing the work for me. And enormously confused year by year as to what the purpose of these things is. <laughs> um, 
years best for whom uh, and years best in, 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 in what sense? And the, the whole short fiction market, which is now, it seems to me, dependent heavily on years best anthologies or anthologies of one kind or another, is um, – it's, it's, it's fascinating me in all kinds of ways, and one of the things that fascinated me, which people will know when my review shows up in a month, is, is an anthology like the Neil Gaiman anthology, mm -hmm. Stories, yep. um, which is very interesting um, in terms of literally the short story market in ways that I probably shouldn't go into uh, quite yet. Yep. Um, but it does strike me that what that does, what that does, and to some extent I see – some elements of this even in uh, your Eclipse anthologies, I'm beginning to wonder, is the science fiction and fantasy field, in a way, simply rescuing the short fiction market? Um, I, don't, I don't know. That, that may be true. Certainly, I, I have this feeling there's a young generation, there's a generation or, or two now of writers who are MFA program graduates, and that kind of uh -huh. makes, it, makes it seem that way, because there's a real uh, slide towards... Um, what would you call it? T towards more slipstreamy kind of work. I mean, I was interested. I got. I don't know when it's going to run, but I've seen a review of my book, Godlike Machines, that uh, uh -huh. that Gardner Dozois has written, and he he makes this comment. He sort of says, you know, in amongst everything else, along comes this book that's just straight hard SF. It's a little bit like after having spent you know months drinking sort of weak tea, being given a good you know you know shot of straight straight whiskey or something, and like, fump, that's the science fiction thing. And I think that's yeah. partly what you're talking about, too. Well, it's that plus the fact that no realistic writer – I mean, we've, we've talked before about MFA fiction, about people who yeah, yeah. publish in zines. And the ironic thing is that you know, outside of a handful of markets – I mean, what, a story a month or maybe two in Playboy and the same in The New Yorker and if maybe uh, – outside of those few giant markets, the short fiction market – for mainstream short stories is less remunerative and less likely to be read than the short fiction market for genre fiction. Yes. I mean, we don't necessarily... There really is yes. no... Yeah, there's no mainstream... For, for whatever we might say about... Uh, however we might worry about the health of the science fiction magazines, Asimov's and Analog and uh, FNSF, uh, there's no comparable market in the mainstream at all. Yes. There, there is no commercial market where people look at these stories for entertainment and buy them every month. And the, uh, we, we, we complain about how few there are. Maybe what we should be looking at is not how few there are, but uh, but how many there actually are. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly um, you you, and, you get um, – what, what I'm aware of, though, is whilst that's true, the, the science fiction field doesn't necessarily have – the one or two really high-profile places to get their fiction, their short stories published. So whilst uh -huh. you know, we have an Asimov's and an Analog and an FNSF and a Realms of Fantasy and an Ninja Zone and everything else, as well as all the dozens and dozens of anthologies and awesome right. websites like Clark's World, blah, 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 what we don't have is a New Yorker. What no. We, what, we don't, uh, what we don't have is a McSweeney's or a Harper's or something. Which are publishing one or two stories, and you're right that the market's small, but reach out to many, 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 many people. Well, to some extent, Omni did something like yeah, that for a while. Very much. And for a while, with that, when Alice Turner was there, Playboy did something like mm -hmm. that. True. Uh, but but you're right; it's gone now. It's it, there. There is not that occasional science fiction. And the thing that fascinated me about that, I remember one of the books I read uh, several years ago was the Playboy Book of Science Fiction, which was edited by Alice Turner. And it was interesting yep. because it was actually the second anthology Playboy had done. And what struck me about it was that there were stories, as I recall, uh, there were Joe Haldeman stories, there, mm -hmm. were, there were a lot of classic stories by major writers in them that were read by Playboy readers, who, some of whom were science fiction readers, most of whom yep. were not. Yep. In other words, there was a mainstream venue for science fiction. If you go back before Playboy, uh, the entire career of Jack Finney, uh, you know, the Body Snatchers and the Third Level and all those wonderful time travels, slipstream yep. fantasies. The entire career was in Collier's magazine. I don't mm -hmm. know. I think he published maybe two or three stories during his entire career in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. So there, there, there was a kind of general main, a, a good chunk of mainstream short fiction for a long time with science fiction and fantasy, and nobody seemed to bother yeah. uh, to, to seem to mind mind it at all. And now you have this absolute division, which I, uh, I've argued elsewhere, 
didn't really exist until the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the paper that Amelia Beamer and I did, uh, which I've quoted to you before, yeah. we, we, we nailed down the one story that changed everything, and it was A Perfect Day for Banana Fish by J.D. Salinger in The New Yorker in 1949, after which mainstream fiction went in that direction. Yeah. You know, very sensitive, closely observed moment of truth stories. Um, and it's about the same time that that story appeared that Shirley Jackson stopped appearing in the New Yorker and started appearing in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Yeah, interesting. Actually, speaking of that, because I'm all for little segues through this, have you seen the Library of America Shirley Jackson book? It came in the mail yesterday. Oh, excellent. Wonderful. I mean, I've not even opened it yet because it's one of those books where one one of the other secrets of, of being a reviewer is I love these novels and stories when they came out. Do I do I have to reread them now because I'm going to review the book? And the answer is yeah. I'm partly because I want to. Yeah. Uh, partly because uh, it's it's a writer who did not see herself as a genre writer in any s- stretch of the imagination, but didn't see herself as not a genre writer either. She was just writing stories. Yeah. Um, there was a famous story about uh, Harold Ross who published. It was still uh, publisher and editor of the New Yorker when the lottery came out. And it turns out the lottery received more mail, more letters to the editor than any piece of fiction in the entire history of the New Yorker magazine. Wow. Including John Hershey's Hiroshima, including John O'Hare stories and this sort of thing. And uh, the story, which I will have to track down the sources, but but basically Harold Ross – Wrote to Shirley Jackson, who was wrote, Shirley Jackson was in a mainstream literary family. She was married to Stanley Edgar Hyman, a great critic and theorist. Um, and he wrote to uh, so so Ross wrote to Shirley Jackson and said, "I'm never ever going to publish another story again that I don't understand." <laughs> okay, uh, because because the readers were puzzled by it too. Because well, maybe and and it's you know maybe it's a fantasy story. Maybe it's a fable. Maybe it's an allegory. Maybe it's uh, the, the the weirdest thing mm-hmm. uh, is that people were writing in, planning their vacations, pl- planning their highway vacations with their kids, wanting to know where this town is because we think it'd be really fun to take the kids there and see what it's like. <laughs> this, is, this is Middle America gone berserk. It definitely is. I mean, I'm actually waiting for my copy to arrive and I'll be curious to see what you you have to say about it in your review when the time comes. But uh, I was just delighted. I mean, uh, I, well, I my, love... My, my, sense, my, my sense, which I want to see to validate, and another danger of reviewing is you... You have an idea and you want to see if it, if it tests out. But I have suspected for a long time, since Amelia and I did this paper at least, that Shirley Jackson, if she were around today, <clears throat> would easily be considered a slipstream writer. Sure. Um, I think Shirley Jackson and Kelly Link and Mary Rickert and Jeff Ford and all these people would kind of be you know, in the same cloud of uh, you don't quite know what it is, but it certainly isn't that. Yes, exactly. It's something else. Yes. I think that's completely true. I think it's absolutely true. So I want to see if her stories hold up with that. I'm I'm going to just go out there and suggest probably will. I would be surprised if I, you don't. I, I, I really well, I reread, yeah, I reread some of them, and not the most familiar ones. Um, the Demon Lover is one that I reread, which is in Peter Straub's anthology, mm-hmm. the uh, Library of America anthology. And it was just stunningly appropriate. I mean, it was very modern, and I thought, what what must – it's almost like this uh, – issue we started off with, like meeting your first writer that blew your mind. What must it have been like to read a story like this in 1950? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and not object to it. That's the, the, one of the things that bothers me more than uh, it should probably is that I think people spent a great deal of the last century and a half probably learning how not to read fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> le- le- learning, you know, learning how to just sort of Ignore that, and I, I think that uh, Shirley Jackson didn't care about that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think, it, I think yeah. it's going to be a terrific book. And I think that we have always lived in the castle, which I remember as being one of the creepiest uh, haunted house stories I ever read. Is it still going to be that creepy? And I'm guessing probably. Yeah. And let me ask you, just because I'm interested, what took you down to Florida? 
I mean, you know, you're normally safely have... ensconced in Chicago when I talk to you. I, I, I would be ensconced in Chicago. Last weekend, I was in Madison for WISCON. We have the board meeting of the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts. And the conference is in March, but every June we have a board meeting to decide about next year's conference and, and do a lot of uninteresting things. Next year, last year we had a theme for the conference, which was the Sublime, which mm-hmm. is a classic sort of. And we thought, well, since we did the sublime next year, not the ridiculous, ridiculous, yes, right. Uh And our guests (laughs) are going to be Connie Willis and Terry Bisson, and they know that that's the topic, so we're not going to. (laughs) Excellent. That sounds like it would be a really fun long weekend. It will be a fun weekend next next March. Uh, Anybody who's listened who's never been to ICFA should make an effort to get down here. I should go one year. I've never been. As you, you have know. to come one year, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I don't know how we'll make it make it happen, but 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 one year. I mean, maybe maybe I'll do that Australian thing and apply for a grant, a travel grant. That's a thought. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're we always... have a number of a number of Canadians get here on travel grants because Canada, like Australia, actually has some civilized way of subsidizing writers and artists and editors and academics that the United States seems to have overlooked. But you speak of, speaking of Canada and civilization and, and travel, uh, I see it seems likely that Peter Watts is going to come down to AussieCon. Oh, really? Yes. Well, of course, of course he, can, he can go there. <laughs> yeah, of course, yes. Civilized country. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, now, and you're saying that you're off as well. Your next thing is Seattle for the Locus Awards. We're going to the Locus Awards in Seattle, and that will be – it's always fun because there's such a wonderful community up there in Seattle. Yep. And we always combine that with the Science Fiction Hall of Fame induction, which is uh, enjoyable. And again, I would recommend anybody who can listen to this and get to Seattle. The Science Fiction Hall of Fame is really a Science Fiction Hall of Fame. There's yep. a lot of media stuff in it. There's a lot of Star Trek stuff and Star Wars stuff in it. But there are also manuscripts. There are real books. There are – it's, there's the man, as we were talking about Neil Stevenson earlier. I, I assume it's still there. He he loaned them the handwritten manuscript of the I believe the entire Baroque Cycle trilogy. Oh, wow. It's just fascinating to look at a manuscript which is taller than you are. <laughs> <laughs> just... There is that. Well, I, sh- I should tell you, I don't think it's talking out of school. I got. I think I, if if I read the email correctly, I've been invited to sort of ply myself out of bed at like three o'clock in the morning and do mm-hmm. a live podcast from the Locus Awards. That would be wonderful. So I that may be, be around a- for that. <laughs> um, okay. The, 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 the Locus Awards are, well, as I say, there are three things and it's not a large conference, but there, there's the Clarion West workshop is always getting underway. So there's a bunch of really young optimistic, hopeful, would-be writers mm-hmm. uh, who are absolutely delightful to have because they're, 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 these are people that are having that moment. They are seeing Connie Willis for the first time. They're seeing Ted Chang for the first time. They're seeing Eileen Gunn. And it's, it's, it's just a marvel to watch that. Mm-hmm. And then there are the Locus Awards themselves, uh, which we've handicapped uh, before on this. But uh, that's going to bring out some, some, some major interesting writers. And then there are the uh, Hall of Fame yep. uh, uh, inductions. And I, frankly, have forgotten who's being inducted this year. But um, I, yeah, um, I would have to look it up. But 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 I'm sh- I'm just looking at. It. Apparently, it's 5 a.m. The awards will start. Your time. <laughs> My time. So I'd have to get up at 4:45 and grab a coffee um, and be ready. I can do that. That's all right. Well, sp- speaking not as an official representative <laughs> of Locus, not as Liza, not as your editor and publisher, <laughs> as a friend, it's your choice. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure it'll be fun. I got up at, at that kind of time of morning to do the Nebula thing with uh, mm-hmm. t- Tony Scott and or Tony Smith and uh, Cheryl Morgan. So right. th- this would be, you know, it'll be a giggle. I don't know exactly what the plan is, but hey, I'm always up for a bit of a, a giggle and see how the awards go. Should be awesome fun. I think it'll be great fun. I think, and 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 so you and I will talk again in a week, right? And yes, yes, we uh, we will. I'm going to sign off for now. I'm going to go off. I'm reading. Um, was it? I'm reading uh, Ian McDonald's The Dervish House and Greg Egan's Zendegi at the moment, sort of going back and forth between the two. I've not got the Egan thing. I, I want to talk to you about The Dervish House because the more I think about that novel, and I've already, I, I've already written a review, the more I like it. Yeah. And I'm wondering, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the things that fascinates me about McDonald is that it's, River of Gods is such a classic now, it's almost unassailable. I'm not sure I don't like this one better. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, we'll talk uh, about it when we're when I'm done. We'll talk about it next week. Absolutely. Okay. 
Okay. Well, I'm going to run away. I might ping you back in a second just for, you know, but I will. Okay. We will, we will podcast again soon, my friend. Take care. All right. We'll okay. talk to you soon. Okay. Right. Bye. Okay.